I think we also take it for granted that every day here in an English-speaking world, we can see examples of our language everywhere, whether it's in books, signage, radio, things like podcasts, mm -hmm. um, that the language is available to us. That was Kurt Gallardo, the Education Interpretation Manager at the Anchorage Museum. His job has many aspects, including outreach, research, and curriculum creation. His education is in linguistics, and that also comes into play. He says that understanding language is an ongoing endeavor that involves considering how it influences identity and culture. Being able to speak and communicate with one another and convey our thoughts and desires is so embedded within our understanding of the human experience that it can sometimes be forgotten how much it affects. It shapes our entire worldview. It's a cyclical concept Kirk describes as one that influences our culture by the word choices we have, and then our culture influences the language that we use to describe it. So here he is, Kirk Gallardo. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum. Dedicated to exploring Alaska's identity through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. So something that you said earlier when we were talking was that you consider language to be dormant if it's been recorded. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. Um, so a good example would be um, in the late 1800s, there was a massive volcano called Krakatoa, and it essentially displaced a lot of people. And because there were only a few hundred words recorded, we have no idea how to bring the language back in any capacity other than 100, 200 vocabulary words. So then we can truly consider a language functionally extinct. But if a language such as EAC, for example, um, has had its grammar thoroughly recorded, at least the basis for it can be set up so that people can attempt to revitalize it. And so what I mean by that when it's dormant is that all of the working pieces are there mm -hmm. so that if someone were to pick up the grammar and vocabulary list that's comprehensive, um, then the workings of bringing the language back could work. Um, another example would be Hebrew, uh, where it had functionally not been used as a spoken language outside of religious use for well over a thousand years uh, by the 1800s, and now it is a functional a functional language. How do we keep a language alive? Um, that's a really tough question. Uh, I think we also take it for granted that every day here in an English-speaking world, we can see examples of our language everywhere, whether it's in books, signage, radio, things like podcasts, mm -hmm. um, that the language is available to us. And I think when looking at examples of um, communities that have kept their languages alive, there is a sense of, not urgency, but there's a sense of importance placed on the language. And I think that if that sense of importance is lost or taken away, it leads to the decline of the language. Um, I think one really good example I can think of is in Catalan where in Catalonia you'll see signs 
that are bilingual, both Spanish and Catalonian. And I think that level of support is very important. Um, and I think that the work that Aaron Leggett has started with um, place name signage. So uh, recently we had a sign for Chanchnu, I believe. And I think that having that there is important for people that you know want to get a sense of place from outside of the current perspective. So yeah, I, I think it really just boils down to how important do we believe this language is and how, how are we willing to place it in our day to day? Mm -hmm. What happens to a people in their culture when their language disappears? So I think that a lot of issues can come up. Um, I think that people take for granted how deep language goes into the culture there there's always this uh thought that goes around of untranslatable words and i think what they really mean is that you can't translate words one-to-one -one for certain concepts mm -hmm. and so when you see like how deep the relationship between a language and a people go you realize what their worldview is and when it comes to certain concepts such as the land or concepts of time we learn to appreciate how people view these things through a different lens of, uh, of uh, language. And so once these concepts are removed through, say, language suppression, then we really start to see pieces of people's culture get removed with it. So let's say, um, just hypothetically, if the English-speaking world were to not speak English overnight, and that the words, any word that Shakespeare had coined is suddenly banned, um, I think that that would really affect how we, the English-speaking world, would exist day to day, or even uh, certain concepts like comfort food, or uh, really, really just any of the things that we take for granted that seem to be distinctly English-speaking. Mm -hmm. If you really just think about those and think about why it takes an English word to express that and then turn it on its head for a different language. And I think that will get the start to letting a person understand why um, it's essential for a person mm -hmm. to have their, their sense of language as well. I mean, we can even look at the word internet. Yeah. And that is used ubiquitously around the world as internet there's no one-to-one -one with that one mm -hmm. yeah um so like when it comes to words like the internet email or many of these modern modern words automobile um it's it's kind of interesting so if you if you look at how other languages have taken some of these words and localized them especially words that came from the early 1900s as opposed to those that came in the later 20th century, you'll see that there was an attempt for some languages to use their language without borrowing the word. Mm -hmm. So um, the ideas that I could think of are kuruma and um, jitensha for car and bicycle in Japanese. And when you look at the characters, you can see that uh, the character for car looks like the old um, the old word for cart 
And so there's a different view of how uh, words are borrowed as opposed to just taking the word piecemeal as it is today. Earlier, you mentioned language suppression. What is that? So language suppression is a pretty broad term, but it, it basically breaks down to one community forces another community or discourages another community from speaking its own language. Um, I think the most famous examples here in North America would be the boarding schools in which children um, were punished, to put it lightly, for speaking their own languages. Um, and at the same time, I think people are not as aware of um, the same exact thing happening in Europe. So in Wales, uh, in Brittany in France, where the Breton language is spoken, and in Ireland, um, people were highly discouraged from speaking their language. It cost them um, employment opportunities. It cost them uh, punishments in school, just as in North America. And the same type of discrimination was allowed. So this prevented people from moving anywhere economically, or it gave people free reign to abuse a certain language community if the medium of or if the common language wasn't used i suppose so in the case of north america we can see that many that many indigenous peoples were denied better education unless they were willing to use english and even then there were other other hurdles that were put to put it lightly do you know how we view that now when we look back on language suppression, how do we categorize it? How do we categorize linguistic suppression today, you mean? Yeah. I mean, it, it's got to be something that we're pretty shameful of. Sure. And I think people don't realize that we still do this. Um, and what I mean by that is when we consider the internet, I think that if you go to any forum that's written in English, we take for granted that we have an international community of people that speak English. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that if you scroll down enough YouTube comments or find uh, a random thread somewhere, you can see language discrimination happening where people tell others to speak English. Or myself, as um, somebody of Filipino descent, you know, there have been times where I've witnessed people tell other people to speak English in a setting where, you know, they're on the phone with somebody else. And so I, I, I think that if we're going to categorize it, it's um, we've gone from a, a version of language suppression that was very much systemic into one that is um, less obviously so in this day and age. We're more aware of it. Uh, we're more aware of the systemic ways in which we did it. But in terms of our personal interactions, I think a lot of it has been internalized that we're not aware of it. Do you know how often oral indigenous languages are recorded? Or if that's too broad, maybe how many languages do we estimate are extinct? Those are all very difficult questions because um, languages die. Uh, that that's that's sort of a fact. If they're not recorded, um, we we won't know. And if we never knew that the language existed as a global community, then we can't really add or subtract it from account. Now, can we? Mm -hmm. And so, 
uh, when it comes to languages being recorded, I think the, the best answer I can really give is we're not recording enough. Do you know what that process of recording a language looks like? Um, it can vary. Uh, I think prior to any recording audio, a lot of it just had to do with word lists and grammars. Um, as far as technological advances, we've had recorders that have, you know, become increasingly smaller and more portable. Mm -hmm. And as well as transcription work that goes with it to make sure that we have a stable orthography to go along with it, which is a whole set of issues on its own. And um, yeah, the process really can go a few ways. It can be, say, a missionary group that wanted to translate the Bible or linguists who want to um, record the language. Uh, I think that there's, there's many different ways for which um, a community ends up having its language recorded or self-records. Do you know what the first recorded Alaska native language was? Ooh, I'm trying to remember the, the year, but it's in the 1770s where um, Anderson's word list is how I have it in my mind. But it was a word list of, I think, 20 words written in Danana. And obviously this is going from a person who's hearing it through the lens of the English language and recording it with English spelling. So uh, I think that's the first instance I can think of. Um, but I'm sure there may be earlier sources from Russia dealing with Unangach out in the Aleutian chain. And was it 1778? Was that the date you were looking for? That, that does sound familiar. I, I think so, but I'd have to double check to make sure. Okay. And I think language is such a multifaceted thing for anybody to consider. But as a linguist, when you think of language... What do you consider? Lots. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I think that for me, some of the things that I really think of are, why do people consider it a language outside of the community? Um, so like a good example would be Dekitan or Dekhinag. Um, it was a language that received its own specific classification in the 1960s, 1970s by Dr. Krauss, but prior to that, it had been considered it's, uh, as a separate dialect of, uh, of I believe, Koyukon, but I'm not so sure. And so those, those are the first things is, why, why is this a language? Mm -hmm. um, another example would be um, Serbian, Croatian, and Bosnian. There's a packet of cigarettes that has a trilingual label and they say the exact same thing when pronounced with the exception of one or two endings. Mm -hmm. And so it tells me, okay, that there are political things involved, recognition um, from neighbors that are involved as to what constitutes a language. And this is one of those really tough questions that linguists have always had to grapple with is what's the difference between a dialect and a language? Mm -hmm. So um, that's the first thing that I think of. The other parts that I think of is... Uh, is it endangered? Is there an alphabet? Or is there a script? It doesn't need to be an alphabet. It could be a syllabary. It could be a, logo, a logographic writing system. And how healthy is it? What do you mean, how healthy is it? 
Um, are people passing it on to the next generation? You know, that's an interesting thought that there may have been, or there probably was so many false starts in past languages and it was because they were unhealthy. So I guess what I'm saying is if there exists something, as you just said, as a healthy language, then it stands to reason that there also exists an unhealthy language that just ceased to exist. Yeah. Um, and I think, I guess in my view is so long as the language has um, been documented well enough that someone can understand grammatical components and its phonetic components. If a language is documented to that point, I think there will always be a jumping point from which the language can be brought back. Mm -hmm. It may not look the same and it may change due to how speakers take it on. But so long as it's been recorded and recorded well, I have to add, I think that it's in a better place than if it were not recorded at all, first off. Mm -hmm. And I think it's in a decent place for bringing it back second. You know, I, I took a linguistic class in college and a few things stuck with me, but one is the history of words, right? When we look at like where they come from etymologically. Mm -hmm. And so one that always stuck with me was wife. And when you take that far enough back, it was weefman. Yeah. And that was essentially property of man mm -hmm. and then you know through whatever kind of pronunciation you know hurdles we had to go through we we decided on wife but do you know any other words that have patchy histories like that i definitely think that those exist um so like let's say 200 years ago you could have made an entire career of being an etymologist, which would pretty much uh, entail searching for the origins of specific words. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to patchy history, I, I think that there are many, many, many terms. Um, uh, I think during the, during the political climate of last summer um, with protests, uh, that were going on, we can see um, many terms that were brought to light that have racist underpinnings, um, grandfathered in, 
uh, obviously refers to the grandfather clause that were that was popular in many southern states during the Jim Crow era. And I think that, yeah, like to, just to answer the question, there are tons of terms that grandfathered in would probably be the one that really stands out to me, but I'm sure there are thousands, if not tens of thousands of terms across languages that have histories like that. And what do you think we do as a, a society if we want to be progressive, we want to move forward, we want to move past these kind of blemishes in our history? What do we do when we find out about these words, when it's become like well-known? Sure. Um, well, there's a few strategies um, that I can think of. Some cultures turn the words into taboos so that it's just not said anymore. Um, others will just strip the word of any negative connotation. And I'm sure that there are other strategies, but there is no prescribed way that I would say that a society should approach. You know, like I'm, I'm sitting back here now thinking in a podcast, Mm -hmm. what is one man's opinion for how an entire society should handle that? (laughs) I think that's far too great of a question for me to really answer or even uh, provide a a suggestion toward maybe something more answerable would be how does language shape a culture and its identity sure um how does language shape a culture and its identity well i mean this really goes back down to our world view um let's take a very simple word in english conquer um i think with many western ideals of freedom and uh, the sense of valor and honor that is somehow attached to warfare. Uh, this idea of conquering something and that the individual comes out on top is this very interesting mindset. Because once you start translating it into non-Western cultures, you start to see the negative connotations that come with the word conquer. Mm-hmm. And we can see that even by word choice with how we describe our neighbors really shapes our values. So if our values already have this very individualistic setting and we want to talk about the self-made person or self-sufficiency as if it was done by one person on their own, that might be very different with someone who comes from a different language upbringing where the idea of self-sufficiency is taking in the teachings from the generations that precede you and using that so that you don't have to rely on people as heavily. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's, that's a, uh, that comes from same word, two different perspectives. And I think we take for granted that English might be this very multicultural language, but, with different cultures comes different perspectives and different ways that we see these words. And so to say that um, the way we use language can affect culture, it kind of goes back to the uh, that cyclical nature of it. So our languages influence our culture by the word choices that we have, and our culture influences the language that we use to describe it. Mm-hmm. Think of it as sort of like a, think of it like a wheel, mm-hmm. both in that it's cyclical and that it drives motion. And so they all need each other. 
Uh, yeah, I think that without culture, language would be kind of plain and it would be restricted to very pragmatic aspects of our life. And that if we weren't to have any type of language for our culture, it'd be very difficult to express ourselves, mm-hmm. at least um, in communicating with one another. I was thinking about this sentence earlier, and I wanted to see how accurate you thought it was. The history of language is the history of communication. Yeah, I think so. Also, it really depends on how you define those terms, language and communication. Because communication can refer to an interaction between two individuals, two communities, and so forth. And that can be anything from trade to warfare to genocide. And I think that they definitely reflect one another. Mm -hmm. um, And that we see how language use leads to peaceful or non-peaceful coexistences. But I'd have to think a little deeper about that particular quote. But my gut feeling tells me that it's not one and the same, but they're definitely intertwined deeply. Mm -hmm. And this next question might be taking it real far back. And it might be because I just watched 2001 A Space Odyssey that that I even came up with this. But what does the world look like without communication? As of right now, if communication were to disappear, Mm -hmm. sure, uh, we would all be dead. (laughs) Um, (laughs) In what way? Why? Well, how how can you communicate your need for hunger? Mm -hmm. We would have to guess it, you know? Uh, How would we communicate that one is sick? We might have visual cues, but if we, we as an entire society somehow decide to just start acting upon these visual cues as opposed to telling one another, then it becomes difficult. Because let's say you diagnose something like, oh, this person needs surgery, but you don't know how to do surgery. How are you going to tell somebody that person B needs surgery without communication? Yeah. You know, something that I've been picking up throughout this entire conversation, language is so... It's so embedded and it's so a part of who we are that it seems almost like nebulous. Like it's so ingrained in us that it's almost hard to define how much it influences. Mm -hmm. I would definitely agree with that. Um, I mean, if, if language were a neat and tidy subject so to speak then we wouldn't have so many subfields of linguistics trying to analyze it and i think that's uh, that's pretty much it for that like it's it's a massive topic if we're not talking about the classical uh four understudies of linguistics which would be semantics syntax morphology and phonology there's still a whole world out there to explore right Mm mm-hmm And so um, you can find some clarity in it. It can be very satisfying. Mm -hmm. What do you feel are the most pressing concerns in language revitalization today in Alaska as well as on a global scale? Well, um, I guess on a global scale is the digital representation of languages. So we can think of a language like Greek, which has about four or five million speakers. And it has full internet representation in that you can type 
in Greek. You can look at Greek websites. But you look at languages like Fula and Hausa, which are languages in Nigeria that have over 5 million speakers, and yet it is very difficult to find material on the internet for them. I think that there is a bias towards um, a nation um, operating in the quote-unquote official languages of the nation and not uh, giving representation for the other languages. Um, I guess another, another issue that we have is that a general sense of apathy has been built into language suppression so that the generations after don't see the importance of the language. Um, this can be done through economic incentives, such as um, English-only initiatives, where, oh, this office operates only in English, so if you don't speak English, we can't hire you. And so when you say that to a community that's trying to bring back its language, um, the lack of language inclusion can be problematic. Do you feel like there are any misconceptions or misunderstandings surrounding the idea and practice surrounding revitalization? Sure. Um, there are many misconceptions. Um, I think the biggest one is that the language is going to come back exactly how it used to be. I think it's very rare that a language has been spoken exactly the way that it was after a hiatus. And I think a lot of that has to do with the influence of the larger languages uh, influencing its development. Mm -hmm. So an example I can think of is with Breton in France, where the R, which used to be trilled by uh, the last um, first language speakers back in the early 1900s, late 1800s, is now pronounced with a French R. And that's a change that's probably not going to be enforced or changed anytime soon or like they're not going to revert it to the trilled R. Mm -hmm. And I think as a whole, the speech community is okay with that. Um, another misconception that I can think of would be that everybody's going to support it. There are many people who are wary of revitalization efforts as sometimes it can be seen as just another form of uh, language control. Um, another form of language suppression, if you will, in that, oh, this community took this language away from us. Now they want us to learn it, but on whose terms? Mm -hmm. um, so there's those political aspects that fall into it, as well as the power dynamic issues. So what can people or organizations do to support preservation or revitalization of languages? Um, I think... Small steps would be to not be afraid to pronounce words. Uh, be aware that you're going to be corrected mm -hmm. by somebody from that culture. Or um, other small steps could be to use hello and thank you mm -hmm. uh, in, in different languages. And at least having that and having conversations with people from other cultures and getting to know about their language if their language is an endangered one. On a larger scale, um, I think that there definitely would, it would benefit uh, everybody if funding was proportioned to not only 
recognizing official statuses as we did in 2014, but also creating speakers who are um, able to function in areas like the courts where where translation works or interpreting works would be needed. So overall, what role do you hope language can play in education in Alaska's formal and informal learning communities? Um, that's a tough question. And I'm not sure if, uh, I'm not sure if I'm ready to answer that actually. You know, I wonder if a, uh, a helpful way to go about this would be to picture a perfect world scenario. Sure. You know, in, in that situation, what, what would that look like? Um, I think a perfect situation scenario, you know, like 2021 onward would be creating an environment so that people would be multilingual, um, so that we would restore relationships between communities in which people were bilingual, such as Atna and Danana, mm-hmm. where people were bilingual in both languages and eventually trilingual or in some rarer cases um, quadrilingual with Russian and English into that mix. But I think that having a multilingual world in which it's not the same seven or eight major or large languages would be the ideal and that people would be open to communicating and learning more about one another. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me, Cody Liska, for the Anchorage Museum, with additional help from Julie Decker and Hollis Mickey. Chattermark's theme music was produced by Keezy Baby. <laughs>